Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. The, the week has gone very quickly, maybe more quickly for some than others. But anyway, we're in our final class this, um, this day, and um, just like to thank you, really, at the outset of our final class for um, looking after us so well, Sister Lindsay and myself and uh, our three children. We've loved being with you this, this week. And as I've mentioned another, a number of times, here at Malatulin, you've got something very special, and, and we pray that it will continue to be a blessing to those here in Malatulin and, and round about. It's a, an oasis, a spiritual oasis. Well, we've considered together, haven't we, the first epistle in our first four talks, the, the first epistle of the Thessalonians. And remember, um, we, we, we started off in the background, didn't we, in Acts chapter 17, and we saw that this was an ecclesia that was persecuted and an ecclesia that had these two triplets in beautiful harmony, faith, love and hope and work, labour and patience. But we also saw that this was an ecclesia that acted. It had broken from idols, it had actively served and it was patiently waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Paul, this ecclesia was also prepared to take on different roles a steward and a mother and a father and even a brother. This was an ecclesia that was soldiering on to the, on to the kingdom and would continue soldiering on and was not going to get caught up in the cares of this life and, and at no time would they think of peace and safety in their own hearts. No, at no time were they to uh, make this world their kingdom, their Eden, their paradise. They had a vision, didn't they? And though it was flickering a little... The Apostle Paul paints for them a wonderful picture of hope that encouraged them to the end. Well, what we want to do today is to look at the second letter in one class. Uh, and we're going to draw out some important lessons. And I want you just to bear in mind of the time of the writing. Because, in fact, Paul remains at Corinth. The evidence is that he doesn't leave Corinth. He, he writes the first epistle and this challenge that we looked at yesterday about those brothers and sisters thinking that the Lord Jesus Christ had returned, the kingdom of God was established and somehow um, those that were falling on sleep were somehow forfeiting the kingdom, this continued remember we, we mentioned this yesterday didn't we that this continued and so then it um, was a, a natural reason for Paul under inspiration to write a second epistle soon after the first so again, we're looking at a very early writing when we look at the second epistle of Thessalonians. Well, before we look at it, I want you to um, have a glance at a couple of verses in chapter 1, because here we have a prophetic vision. And, and we're going to see that this vision is incredibly important for the brothers and sisters to take hold of, because Paul is going to now lay out, really, a whole series of events that are going to unfold upon the earth, that are going to trouble the believers of Christ. And so they've got to take hold of a vision. And, and brothers and sisters, we've got to take hold of this vision too. Chapter 1, then, and verse 10. So this is the Lord, he... When the Lord shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now, I just want you to go down to verse 12 now. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these two verses here are a picture of God's coming kingdom. And what I'd like you to notice 
is the word glorify. Can you see that? It's there at the beginning of verse 10 and also there at the beginning of verse 12. And so we've got this word that's used deliberately by the Apostle Paul. And interestingly, it comes from the root to be held in honour, to be glorious. To be held in honour and to be glorious. Now that's very interesting. Because this is not just relating to the glory in the saints. It's about being deemed as glorious. Can you see the the difference there? It's a very, very important difference. This is not a vision of the kingdom where the saints are glorified. No, no, no. This is a vision of the coming kingdom when the saints are deemed to be glorified by the world. Can you see that difference, brothers and sisters? They're not glorious merely, but they're viewed as glorious by the world. Now remember, this is an ecclesia that was being persecuted, that was finding life very challenging. And so, what an incredible exhortation using this word glorified that you, brothers and sisters, in Thessalonica, you who have been humbled by the hand of Nero, you will not only be glorified, but you will be deemed as glorified. You will be the elect in the coming age. You will be kings and priests in the coming age. You will be the dignitary. Can you see that? This, 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 this whole idea of waiting for the coming king, and, and here Paul is using this word, that you will be the dignitary too. You see that? It's interesting, isn't it? And so what we see here, and it's a very apocalyptic picture, isn't it? Because I'm sure you know, and you've seen this with Brother John, that the way the book of Revelation works is that you see a vision, and then you see a whole series of events that builds up to that vision. And similarly here in the second epistle, we could describe chapter 1 as an apocalyptic vision, because what we're going to see in the following chapters is a whole build-up to that end state. And so Paul here now, as it were, he's looking back to the ages past, to men and women who have suffered for Christ, men and women who have been worn down by the opposing forces of life, and now they are elect, they are altogether glorious. Can you see the point? This is their day. And their day belongs to the day of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope, isn't it? Our day is coming. Today is not our day. Our day belongs to the day of the Lord. And that will be our day when we will be deemed as glorious. Now, we've got to take hold of that vision. But because we're going to see in chapter 2 something incredibly challenging and difficult. So never, never, never forget that God has promised you that not only will you be glorious, but you will be seen as glorious. Not that we aspire to these things, but what a wonderful thing it is to know. So we now come to to chapter 2. Now, now, here the argument goes such as this. Paul is saying, look, you're still troubled as an ecclesia, you're still concerned that Paul, uh, Paul is still concerned about the ecclesia that these brothers and sisters think that the Lord Jesus Christ has returned. So Paul says in chapter 1, look, if, if, if Christ had returned, you'd be glorious. And the world would recognize that you're glorious. You, you wouldn't be going through this persecution. 
Okay, I, I understand that. The reader would, would have thought, they would have mused. But now he goes on in chapter 2 to say that there is going to be a growing apostasy and this apostasy is going to grip the world. And this will be the great sign of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite a, a tragic sign in many ways, brothers and sisters, but it's one that we should take note of. And at the end, we'll conclude on a very powerful exhortation. So come to chapter 2 then and look at verse 3. Perhaps Brother John has briefly looked at this during his um, week with you. But but look at these words in verse 3. Let no man deceive you in chapter 2 by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So, So the reason why Paul is setting out this elaborate detail is to really address the concern that Jesus Christ has returned. And he says, no, there's going to be a man of sin. But before you see the man of God upon the earth, you will see the man of sin. Alright then, so this is going to be a necessary sign before the Perusia, before the returning of the emperor, before they become emperors, before they become kings and priests, there is going to be the appearance of this man of sin. Well, just look at a a few phrases here. Uh, Notice the falling away first there at the middle of verse 3. The revised version has, the falling away shall come first. That's a very helpful rendering, isn't it? The first thing that will happen, brothers and sisters, in Thessalonica is that there will be a falling away first. Christ hasn't returned. The first thing that you are to wait for is that there will be a falling away first. First, And that word falling away means a defection, which we'll come to in a moment, or an apostasy. That's what it means. So this is not a particularly encouraging message. The first thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be an apostasy. And if it's a falling away, then we're being told that it comes from within. There is going to be an apostasy from within the community of believers. It's coming from within. Paul is being told here and Paul is passing on the message to these brothers and sisters at Thessalonica now there's a few crucial characteristics that we should note um, that relate to this man of sin to build a picture so if you look at the words there in verse 3 we see there that this great apostasy was to develop from within but before we look at that I want you to picture this in your minds. We've already looked at this idea of the soldier of Christ, haven't we? That we are to soldier on to the kingdom and so when the Lord Jesus Christ returns he's going to gather the soldiers. So we have to be soldiers today in order to be soldiers tomorrow. If I were to tell you that this word apostasy, the falling away, is actually classical Greek. Paul is is, is using classical Greek, I think, for a, a, a deliberate reason here. Again, under inspiration, of course, because this classical Greek means a revolt or a deflection staged by a military commander. It's speaking of a coup, a takeover, an overthrow. Now, remember this. We are following the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our general. We're, we're marching to the kingdom. And we're marching, waiting for that one to come and call us to the kingdom of God. That's the picture that we've painted. Yet here, as the brothers and sisters were marching as soldiers of Christ, there was a senior member within that group 
that defaults, that he revolts from within. This is a military coup, brothers and sisters. That's the picture I want you to have in your minds. This is a military coup. This is a soldier of Christ that takes others with him. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, again, I want you to look at that phrase, man of sin, son of perdition. And I just want to break that down. We're going to make this very simple. This man of sin, son of perdition. Well, of course, the phrase, the man of sin, is a figurative expression, isn't it? You, you, you can't have a man full of sin. So it's representative, it's symbolic. And, and, and here, sin is characterised or symbolised by a man, okay? And there's nothing new in that when we think of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He's a personification of sin, isn't he? Of the greater battle that would take place between the Lord Jesus Christ and King Sin. So I want you to, to, to imagine here that this man of sin, this son of perdition, is symbolised as sin. Now that's interesting because now we can start de to decode this. The Greek for perdition is destroying utter destruction or ruin. If you don't know this, it's worth just jotting these in your margin. And, and again, it will um, make sense in a moment. So the Greek for perdition is destroying utter destruction or ruin. So the phrase then, the man of sin, the son of perdition, what Paul is using is something called personification. Which sounds complicated, but it's not. It's telling us, man of sin, son of perdition, if we find out that perdition is destruction, then it's telling us that perdition is the father and the man of sin is the son. Can you see that? In that phrase, man of sin, son of perdition, if, 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 if son of perdition, if perdition is destruction, then we're being told that destruction or spiritual ruin is the father and he bears the man of sin. Can you see that? And so what we're being told here, that the man of sin was born out of spiritual ruin and destruction. That's the conclusion we draw from that simple expression there. Nothing overly complicated. Can you see that? The man of sin was born out of spiritual corruption. It came from within. Ah, oh, it's beginning to make sense now, isn't it? It's not this elaborate phrase in dramatic style to paint the man upon the throne in Rome, it's actually a very accurate expression of the origin of this man. So the man of sin would come from an environment of spiritual corruption. That's what it's telling us. And if you look down at verse 8, it says, the man of sin is called wicked, or the wicked one, or the lawless one. That This man would have no regard for the law of God. He would stand against God. He would be in opposition to God and his laws. Okay? Now it's interesting when you look at these verses, just verses 4 and 8. Let me just show you these Bible connections. And perhaps you've never seen this before, but what Paul is doing here in this little section, he's drawing from lots of Scripture. And for to, to the ready reader, the ready reader would notice these connections. So, for example, at the beginning of verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, takes us right away to Daniel 11, verse 36. He shall exalt himself above every God. 
And the interpretation there of Daniel 11 verse 36 is Constantine. So all these characteristics now fold in to this man of sin. In the second half of verse 4, who sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, well that's very similar, isn't it, to Ezekiel 28 and verse 2, I sit in the seat of God, thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Now, those were words of condemnation to who? To the king of Tyre. And then in verse 8, that wicked or that wicked one be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth takes us right away to Isaiah 11 verse 4 and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And here Isaiah is describing all those who are wicked who stand in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. So, so this man of sin embraces all these characteristics of old, all these who have stood against God for a period. And he's the full image of those, brothers and sisters. He's the full personification. He's the man of sin. Any detail that you read of those who are lawless and oppose almighty God, he is the one. They all fold in to this one. The lawless one, the wicked one. It's almost like these Old Testament characters of evil really are figures of one to come. The wicked one. So with those thoughts in mind then, let's just go through a few little details just to see what's going on. There's, there's, a, there's a, a number of, of crucial characteristics here. So here then, um, the great apostasy um, was to develop from within the camp of God. We're just going to, um, yes, it comes from within uh, the camp of God. It comes from the early church. It existed at the time of Paul's writing. Look at verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity or lawlessness doth already work. So there was traces of this man of sin at the time of the writing of the Apostle Paul to this ecclesia at Thessalonica. He would exalt himself and sit in the temple of God. And we're also told that this power would exist in the earth right until the return of Christ because notice in verse 8, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Okay, so these are um, some of the points that we just looked at together there. Now we might know some of these points but for for me the most important question in all of this is where did this system come from? I'm going to show you something very interesting brothers and sisters. We're going to trace now this seed of iniquity. You come with me to Isaiah chapter 57. And here the children of Israel have made their way into Babylon and they have not preserved their separateness. They've been taken into captivity, they've left Jerusalem behind and look at these things here. Isaiah 57. And remember we're looking at man of sin, son of perdition. Can we see any traces, any hints of the origin of this man, this personification of sin, this personification of all those that stood against the Almighty God. 
Well, look at verse 3. But draw neither hither, ye sons of the sorcerers, or sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth? And draw out the tongue. Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? Now, know what Isaiah is saying here. He's looking at the children of Israel. They've not retained their separateness, and they've become Babylonian. And by this time, Cyrus is on his way. Or at least there was rumour about Cyrus. The Cyrus, the deliverer, the one who was going to deliver the, the children of Israel out of Babylon. Something that had been prophesied 125 years earlier. Yet the children of Israel didn't care. Because they'd become Babylonian. They, they couldn't hear the footsteps of Cyrus approaching the walls of Babylon. And isn't that a powerful lesson for us? The greater than Cyrus is coming to deliver us from this wicked Babylon that we live in. He's going to dry up the Euphrates just like Cyrus did of old. This is the sixth file, isn't it, in Revelation chapter 16. The connections are very striking. Cyrus is marching on his way. How do you feel about that, brothers and sisters? Do you feel very comfortable in where you are today? Or do you want that time of release? Well, they didn't. They were very reluctant to return to Jerusalem. And, and look at the language here. Did you notice that? What had they become? They had become children of transgression at the end of verse 4, a seed of falsehood. Children of transgression. They had become children of sin, man of sin, son of perdition. They, they, they caught up with the, the pleasures of Babylon. Brothers and sisters, the seeds of iniquity had been planted within their heart and they had become children of sin, man of sin, son of perdition born out of spiritual corruption. And where did it begin? Here. Here, brothers and sisters. And this is why the book of Revelation picks up this whole notion of Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, an abomination of the world, because this is where it began. Of course, there are seeds of Egypt here, but they had lost their separateness. The seeds of iniquity had been planted in their heart and they became children of sin. So with those thoughts then, shall we trace them? Shall we, shall we follow them? They're going to wait, make their way back to Jerusalem. But bear in mind now that those seeds of iniquity had been planted in them. They had become children of sin. And these children of sin now in Babylon return to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen? Well, we're going to find out. Come with me to Zechariah chapter 5. So we follow with the story, the children of Israel now, these children of sin. What a, what a tragedy that is. These children of sin now return under Cyrus. They return under Cyrus and they go back. And here the prophet Zechariah 
prophesies against the, the evilness that's taking place in Jerusalem. Let, let's just look at this. Zechariah chapter 5 then. We'll read these words um, carefully. Verse 1 then. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold a flying scroll or a fi- flying roll. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying roll or scroll. The length thereof is twenty cubits and the breadth thereof is ten cubits. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof, and the stones thereof. So there's a lot of information there. The first thing I want you to notice is that there's a flying roll or a flying scroll. And this flying roll or scroll has a message. It it bears news. And the news, notice in verse 3, is a curse. It's a curse. So this is a judgment from God because these children have become children of sin and so there's a rebuke there's a curse well what do we know about this roll you can see on the screen there that it was 20 cubits by 10 cubits and importantly they are the dimensions of the holy place in the tabernacle the porch of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6 verse 3 and in fact also Uh, the dimensions of Solomon's brazen altar in 2 Chronicles 4 verse 1. So a number of things relate to the size of this scroll. So there's something very deliberate about the size of this scroll and in that size and in those proportions relate to the message, the message that came to the children of Israel. Now if you are to look at those three objects there on the screen, God is pronouncing a message against the sanctuary and the altar. Okay? I want you just to think about that. The message relates to the sanctuary and the altar. Now, the sanctuary was where the children of Israel worshipped. And where you worship, you have fellowship with God. And the altar is where you sacrifice. Well, that's where your sins are atoned. So in other words then, we draw this conclusion. The scroll is rebuking their fellowship and their forgiveness. You see that? Their fellowship and their forgiveness. God is angry with their fellowship and God is angry with their means of atonement, their forgiveness. Now this is interesting because I I, I quickly um, mentioned it, but what does this word curse mean? Well, the the cursing here um, in Zechariah chapter 5 is related to this other phrase, cut off. Can you see that? It's mentioned twice, isn't it, in verse 3, cut off you may have a different rendering in your Bible. It's not a very good translation, sadly, in the authorised version. The Revised Standard Version has 
been declared innocent. Now, if you have that rendering, suddenly the section makes sense. So he curses, this scroll curses those that have been cut off or those that have been declared innocent. Okay? Well, innocent from what? Well, it makes sense now because when we look at verse 3 of chapter 5, those that stole and swore. So, so the children of Israel were swearing and they were stealing and they were declaring themselves innocent at the altar and God now was no longer going to accept that and he was going to rebuke them with a curse. He also is angry with those, notice in verse 4, those that had made the house the house of a thief. And again, if you look at verse 4, it says those that swear falsely by God's name. So these children of Israel, they were living a lie in Jerusalem. Living a lie. And now the prophecy of Zechariah is saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to rebuke you with a curse. And, and it's this background, brothers and sisters, that helps us understand 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You might be wondering where I was going with all of this. But we understand this history now. Now look at this. God's response to his house. Now when you come across God's house, it's always God's temple. Notice that. His house, his house, notice there in verse 4, would be consumed with timber and stones. Look in your margin. Where does it take you? Well, I'm sure you've got Leviticus 14. Shall we have a look at that? Keep your finger in Zechariah chapter 5. And I want you to go to Leviticus 14. And we are going to look at one verse. But this relates to a leprous house. You've got to get this down because this really is helpful. This is about the leprous house. And, and, and what we read here in verse 35 of Luke chapter 14 is that when it is declared that there is a plague in the house, there's a whole series of things that take place with that house. First of all, we see in uh, Leviticus 14 that the priest would insist that the house was emptied before it was assessed. Once the house was empty, the priest would come, out, come in and, and if he saw that there was leprosy in the walls and in the house, then the house would be shut up for seven days and he'd come again and he would expect the walls. And again, if there was leprosy in the house, then the stones would be removed, the house would be scraped, new stones would be brought in, the house would be plastered and the priest would leave. And if he returned and again found leprosy in the walls, then the house was to be destroyed. So, with those thoughts then, look at verse uh, 45. You can see as you glance down, it's all about inspecting a leprous house. Just, just notice in your own time the word see or look or house. It's all about observing leprosy. Well, here in verse 45 then, and he shall break down the house. Okay, so once the stones have been removed and new stones have been brought in and the house has been plastered, and the priest comes again and there's still leprosy in the walls, he shall break down the house the stones of it, the timber thereof, and all the mortar of the house, and he shall carry them forth out of the city into an unclean place. Okay? So that's the lesson of a, a leprous house. 
Well, what's the big lesson? Well, at the end of verse 45, what happens? Where do you take a leprous house? Where do you take a leprous house? What does he say? What does he say in the AV? I've got to an unclean place. Please underline that because that is the key point here to understand Zechariah chapter 5. So if a house is leprous, everything, including the stones, are taken to an unclean place. So coming back then to Zechariah chapter 5, this house, this house of God, had become a leprous house. Think of these words. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, says the Lord, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Mark 11 verse 17. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Matthew 24, verse 2, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so what we're being told, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus Christ, as the priest came, he closely inspected that house several times and finally condemned it. He condemned the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. It was a leprous house. It was full of Judaistic thinking. And so what happens to a leprous house? Everything goes. To where? To an unclean place. That's the message, brothers and sisters. And so we're being told here that Jerusalem now, the temple of God in Jerusalem is now on the move. Timber, stones, the thinking, the philosophy, the ideology, the culture, the tradition, the whole lot is on the move. And it's on the move to an unclean place. So with those thoughts in mind, let's look down now at verses 10 and 11 of Zechariah 5. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it a house. So there's a new house to be built in the land of Shinar. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Can you see the point? The whole house, everything was to be rebuilt. Jerusalem, as it were, or Jerusalem's house was on the move and it was to be rebuilt stone by stone, timber by timber, in an unclean place. And there's no more unclean place than the land of Shinar. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. The very place that stood in opposition of God at the epicenter of the Babylonian thinking. We haven't got time to look at this, but um, it's my belief that that Tower of Babel um, resided in the city that Nebuchadnezzar oversaw. It's the Etamananki, the great temple, that the greatest temple of 1,197 temples that were there. And you can go round the, the Pergamon Museum and you can see uh, Robert Caldivay, who was the archaeologist, his discoveries and he concludes that the great temple there, the Temple of Marduk, the house of the God of Babylon that Daniel records there in Daniel chapter 1, 
was the Tower of Babel. But it wasn't there, was it? This house could not be rebuilt literally in Babylon. Why? Because by the time Zechariah is written, Babylon is defeated. So it can't be there, can it? And it can't be this Etimalanki, or it can't be this Tower of Babel. It's speaking about something else. It's speaking about a spiritual temple, brothers and sisters. It's the thinking, it's the ideology that goes. It's not actually brick by brick and mortar by mortar. It's the thinking. And the thinking now goes to the unclean place. And it goes to Rome. So I want to take our minds now to Rome and St. Peter's Basilica. You you might not know. I don't know how many of you have been round St. Peter's. Perhaps there's been a number of you that have gone round. When you look at St. Peter's and you look down the main hall, what you won't know, I'm sure, is that the main hall is called the spinous, the spine. It's the spine of the hall. You don't read anything like this in Rome today. But the spinous has a history. It was a line where Jews and Bible-believing Christians were crucified. Did you know that? The very foundations on which St. Peter stands today, there are faithful men buried under who would not accept the Roman Catholic Church they would not accept the doctrine of the Trinity and they lost their lives and they were crucified under there the spina the main hall and did you know that this basilica in Rome there is a greater basilica right next door it's called St John Lateran Church there and this was given by Constantine to the Bishop of Rome And it is here, in this cathedral church, that the Diocese of Rome, Pope Francis today, sits officially as the Pope. A little hall next to St. Peter's. And it is here that he speaks ex cathedra and is infallible. And outside the Lateran church here are these words, Dormus Deo, the house of God. And outside that is a little plaque that says, Most Holy, Lateran Church of all the churches in the city in the world, the mother and the head. Taken to the unclean place. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture, brothers and sisters, but inside St. John's Lateran Church is a series of stairs and they're referred to as the Scala Sancta or the Holy Stairs. And and tradition has that these stairs are actually the praetorium. Or they led to the praetorium where Pilate stood with the Lord Jesus Christ during his trial. And at the top of these stairs is this building called the Sancta Sanctorum, which is the Holy of Holies. And this is the personal chapel of the Pope. It's called the Chapel of St. Lawrence. 
And to get there, the Pope, historically, traditionally, would go up the stairs on his knees because those stairs were too holy. For they were holy ground. And inside this building, which is the private chapel of the Pope, there is this room. And in the Latin it says, there is no holier place in the world. It's called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Well, Zechariah chapter 5 tells us that the temple in Jerusalem that had the Holy and Holies would go to the unclean place. The Sancta Sanctorum that leads to the Holy of Holies. The private chapel of the Pope himself. In fact, there are a number of connections between Zechariah 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and, and just, just so we just flip between these so that you can make these marks in your margin. But Paul is taking us here. This is where he's taking us. So, so notice in, in, in verse 6, resemblance in the margin, iniquity in Zechariah chapter 5 verse 6. And you've got the mystery of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. In Zechariah 5 verse 7 you've got a woman that sitteth. And then you've got in 2 Thessalonians 2, sitteth in the temple of God. And then you've got in Zechariah 5 verse 8, this is wickedness. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, that wicked be revealed. So this is it. This is the leprous house, brothers and sisters. It is... Rome. And it's interesting when you look at 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and the way that the Apostle Paul uses the word temple, for example, in verse 4, the temple of God. In fact, in this chapter we've got um, eight times Paul uses that word temple, but in every case it is the Greek word naos, which never refers to a Jewish temple. So though this temple was to go to an unclean place and would mislead the world, God is not misled. What he sees in Rome, he does not see as his residing place. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you, you think about Zechariah chapter 5, what you're being told here is that if you want to see Pharisaical thinking, then you go to Rome. If you want to see Judaistic thinking, you go to Rome. This hypocrisy, this self-righteousness, you go to Rome. And so what we're being told here is that these early seeds of iniquity were planted in the hearts of men and women from Babylon, the, the people of God, and they went back to Jerusalem and they made Jerusalem corrupt and so God with this scroll he, he judges Jerusalem and they will lose their temple the house was found desolate and the house then would go on the move and it would go to spiritual Babylon and so that is the background brothers and sisters of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 what, a, what an interesting fascinating and dramatic story and backdrop that is and that's the house that we see in this chapter. Well, let's just pick out a, a few other things here. 
You see, don't you, that this man of sin brings about a strong delusion in verse 11. The Greek means a working error or a lie. I've been telling the young people all week, when you're answering questions, always think about answers in Bible principles. And so then, what is the Bible principle here? Well, the Bible principle is surely found in the Garden of Eden and the first lie which is the lie of the serpent. Ye shall not surely die. That was the original deception. And surely that is the, the, the deception that has been embraced by the, the church at large. Thou shalt not die. And so then we see the, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. That, that we can grasp to be equal to the Elohim. Whereas we as Christadelphians, as brothers in Christ, we know to the contrary and that man of sin is to be worshipped as God in the flesh and as brother John has shown you that he has replaced in so many minds the Lord Jesus Christ these other little details here in verse 4 of chapter 2 that the man is going to sit on a throne and we know that we've seen Pope Francis sit upon the throne but it's an interesting word because that word means sojourns or settle down for a time it's not the idea of just momentarily sitting down in your throne and getting up and going about your day to day business no it means about sitting down for a time he remains there for a period of time and the, 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 the church takes great pride doesn't it in their continual succession of popes they believe that the first pope was Peter there's been a succession of popes sat upon the throne they have sojourned for a while for 2,000 years what a deliberate word is being used there this is the thinking of the Roman Catholic Church which we know to be false so all the things that Brother John has been talking about here the dangers of Babylon and, and how it can be seen in humanism well we've seen the background it comes from Israel brothers and sisters it comes from the nation of Israel when they're in Babylon. And the same can happen to us. Cyrus is on his way. Are we overly comfortable in Babylon? Well, we're drawing to the end of our week together and that's certainly not a note I want to finish on. So I want to go to chapter 3. Where's the exhortation, you might be asking? Well, it's coming on. Because here in, in chapter 3... Um, Paul has set out that you're going to see this delusion you're going to see the man of sin and for every Christadelphian for every believer of Christ it is absolutely instrumental instrumental that we see that system for what it is it's critical brothers and sisters we need to see that system for what it is. Daniel 7 verse 25 says that that system wore down the saints, persecuted the sons and daughters of God for 1260 years. They're our brethren. They now rest in Christ. And God, as he said to Cain regarding Abel, I hear his voice from the ground. So we need to understand these things we, we need to be connected to these things brothers and sisters so here's the exhortation because it's going to finish on a, on a note of grace here 
2 Thessalonians then, chapter 3, and we want to look at verse 16 now. In this final salutation, we read these words, Now the Lord of peace himself shall give you peace always, by all means, the Lord be with you all. The salutation notice of Paul, with mine own hand, which the token, in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What a lovely salutation that is to, um, some would say, the second epistle, a troubled epistle. It is a little troubled. But we've got words of exhortation here. Now, what I want you to notice is um, that expression there, the Lord will keep you. The Lord will keep you. Before we get to um, verses 16 to 18, come back to um, verse uh, 3, 4 and 5. The Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Well, it's not evil, is it? Have a look in your margin. In fact, the evil there is the evil one. It's not just general evil. Paul is saying, have confidence in God. He's going to spare you from the wicked one. And who is the wicked one? It's the man of sin, the son of perdition. Brothers and sisters, this is how dangerous that system is. We might think, well, it's not really a persecuting threat anymore. Surely this threat is coming from elsewhere. Paul is saying that threat is still there. Even after that time of persecution, it's a, it's a strong delusion now. It grabs your heart and your minds. It trades souls, we read in Revelation 18. It doesn't destroy your body. It destroys your faith. We've got to be so careful. And here Paul is saying that if we believe in God, he's going to guard you from the evil one, the man of sin, the son of perdition. That's important to notice. But also to keep you from evil. Now that's interesting because um, you'll, you'll notice uh, if you've got the revised version, keep you is guard you. Again, it's a military term. And the picture here is a great general and he's protecting you and ensuring your safety. Now that's lovely, isn't it? Because remember, there's a revolt. The man or sin, the son of perdition, he's, he's performed a coup. He's taken those out of the camp and he's now going to revolt against the great general. And here the picture is in chapter 3 that the great general knows that the coup has taken place. And he, the general, is going to guard you from the leader of the opposition, the wicked one. This is a, a military battle that's taking place here. And he's going to guard you. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. We've got nothing to fear. So that's rather lovely, isn't it? Now, I, I refer to verses 16 to 18, which is the final salutation. And this is why you can conclude with this salutation, because Paul is saying, look, the Lord Jesus Christ is the captain of your salvation. He's going he's to protect you from the evil one. There's nothing to fear. He's going to guard you. Now, the Lord of peace will give you peace. Now, we've already said that this was a a persecuted ecclesia. This was a troubled ecclesia. How can he say with confidence 
that he will give you peace. Well, we've talked a little bit, haven't we? We we talked a little bit in our opening talk about peace inwards and peace outwards. And we're not to expect peace outwards, but we are to expect peace inwards if we develop into the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a number of thoughts that flood to mind, aren't there, when we think about that, the Lord of peace. But where does your mind go to? In a salutation. Well, it's a lovely exhortation if you've not gone there mentally. Can we have a look at Numbers chapter 6? And I want you to picture in your minds now that Paul is now making his final words known to this ecclesia at Thessalonica. And so, coming back to Numbers chapter 6, these are some of the words of Moses. As he sees the children of Israel making their way. Numbers chapter 6, and, and notice the connections here with Moses' words and Paul's words. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 24, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. So, so what's the connection? We, we've noticed that there's a connection in terms of the words, but what's the connection? Well, it's a powerful connection powerful connection the children of Israel under the flesh were making their way into the land and Moses assures them Yahweh your God the God of Israel will give you peace this first ecclesia of the Gentiles the the blueprint of the gospel embracing the world Paul a latter-day Moses figure says to this Gentile ecclesia as they now embark upon their journey to the kingdom of God, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will give you, even you, peace. Can you see that? Here Paul is a latter-day Moses. And what it's telling us here, brothers and sisters, is now this hope that was centred in Israel that we heard from Brother John last night is now embracing the whole world for those who are prepared to commit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and become soldiers in his army. And the Lord will give you peace. That's lovely. But there's something else. And this is where we're going to finish this week. Let's have a look at Leviticus chapter 7. Who would have thought that we're going to conclude in a series in Thessalonica in Leviticus? Well, we are. This is where we're going to finish today. Leviticus and chapter 7. Now, now what I want to do, I want to draw out a few little details here about the peace offering. Now, remember, we're trying to understand what this Lord of peace means. So apply the principle. Where do we come across the Lord of Peace? Well, it's the peace offering. So what can we find in the peace offering? Well, we can find a lot. So then, if you look at Leviticus 7, I'm just going to pick out a couple of phrases for you to notice, draw your attention to. So, first of all then, Leviticus 7, verse 11, you've got some things related to the peace offerings there. If you go down to verse 12, you can see that it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So you're supposed to be joyful. You're supposed to be joyful about these things. Well, why are you supposed to be joyful? Well, 
With the peace offering, you can bring cakes, in verse 13, with leavened bread. Now, that was different. No other offering allowed the offerer to bring leavened bread. And leaven is the symbol of sin. And so, this is why the peace offering was so important. God was saying, I can fellowship sin with the right attitude. Couldn't do that with any other offering. Leaven was unique with the peace offering and the peace offering was all about fellowship. Fellowship with God. And you could bring leaven. You could bring leaven to the peace offering. Because that's the point. God can fellowship man with the right attitude. So what is this attitude? What attitude do we have to have? Though we've all got leaven, we've all got leaven, brothers and sisters, we've all got sin this side of the kingdom. So how can we have peace with God? Ah, we are answering the question we're looking for. How can we have peace with God if we are leavened? Well, you come all the way down to verse 28. We're going to read a little section together. See if you can spot it. Verse 28 then of Leviticus chapter 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel. He that offereth the sacrifice of his peace offering unto the Lord shall bring his oblation unto the Lord of the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the offerings of the Lord made by fire, the fats with the breast. It shall he bring, that the breast may be waved for a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat upon the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. And the right shoulder shall he give unto the priest for a heave offering of the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron that offereth the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right shoulder for his part. And the final verse, for the wave breast and the heave shoulder have I taken of the children of Israel from off the sacrifice of their peace offerings and have given them unto Aaron the priest and unto his sons by a statute forever from among the children of Israel. Now I know there's a lot of information there. We're going to decipher it. There's a lovely exhortation here when we found it. There's a breast and there's a right shoulder here. The breast was the wave offering. And the shoulder was the heave offering. Now, the breast you would hold the breast of the offering and you would wave it up and down and in the up and down it would be only one motion in the up you were saying this came from God and in the down you were saying and I have received it as a gift okay and as the heave offering, you would stand by the altar and you would do this motion. You would move to the right, to the altar, to say, this is committed to the altar of God. And then you would bring it back to say, I have received it as a gift. Okay? So the wave and the heave offering were both offered to God and they were received back. The wave offering and the heave offering both were brought in conjunction as the peace offering. So both these offerings symbolise the peace offering fellowship with God. It will all come clear in a moment. The wave offering. What was the wave offering, brothers and sisters? It was the breast. 
It was the heart. Isn't that faith, hope and love? And the heave offering was the right shoulder of the animal which spoke of strength. I have received strength from God and I will dedicate it to his service. That's what the heave offering was. And isn't the heave offering work, labour and patience? And so what we're being told here, brothers and sisters... is that this whole concept of faith, hope and love, work, labour and patience didn't just relate to the Thessalonians. But it related to Israel. This was Jewish. And what God is saying to this ecclesia, you now, as a figure for the whole world, becomes the new Israel of God. Men and women who bring these offerings not under ritual, not under ritual, but as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Can you see it, brothers and sisters? What a lovely thing. Isn't the Bible inspired? The Lord of Peace. Who would have thought the Lord of Peace? And you look at that Lord of Peace, it's bookends. First epistle, beginning and end. Second epistle, beginning and end. It's bookends. Faith, hope and love, work, labour and patience runs all the way through. All the way through, brothers and sisters. And so what we're being told here, if we want peace, if we want fellowship with God, we've got to give our love and we've got to give our commitment. Now that's nothing new, is it? But it's lovely to see it in Scripture. Thessalonians were the new Israel and God has brought them into fellowship. He has brought them into fellowship. A Gentile ecclesia, he has brought them into fellowship. And now they become the blueprint of all Gentile ecclesias. This ecclesia at Thessalonica, a response of the vision of the man from Macedonia that we began all the way back last Sunday. And now it's the blueprint for the world. So, brothers and sisters, I wanted to finish there because I jumped for joy when I found this. I'm not going to leave you with questions because there's no time. There's no time to answer questions. I've got to give you imperatives. And I'm going to give you three imperatives. In a world of challenge, in a world of conflict and pressure, we can find the Lord of Peace if we focus on developing our faith, hope and love and work, labour and patience. God has made it so abundantly clear that the world will become increasingly wicked and there will be the great uprise of the wicked one. But it should give us heart. The Lord is on his way. The Ecclesia at Thessalonica is a model Ecclesia for the 21st century. Let us not get caught up in the cares of this life. Let us not say within our hearts peace and safety. 
but let us rather continue to be soldiers in Christ in rank together warring the warfare in our minds for it's in our minds that the battle be won or lost it will be in our minds that the battle will be won or lost and so brothers and sisters the final salutation of Moses the final salutation to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica and perhaps now the final uh, uh, salutation for all of us here as we leave this Bible school the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you the Lord lift up his countenance and give us all in that great day Peace.